This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, this is Todd Haynes, and you're listening to Film Spotting. kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. If you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. My straw reaches across the room. And starts to drink your milkshake. Ten years after its release, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood still towers over many of the films that have been released in its wake, not unlike Daniel Day-Lewis towering over poor Paul Dano in that memorable scene from the movie. Then again, Blood lost out to the Coen brothers' No Country for Old Men at the Oscars, and neither of us had it in the number one slot for that year. Some heathens among us, Josh, failed to put it in their top ten. I can't believe that. So this week on the show, we take another look at PTA's film with a sacred cow review, plus our top five movie years. That and a lot more. Drink it up! Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back after a little Thanksgiving break, though. We did put out some new content, our revisit of The Force Awakens. If you haven't had a chance to catch that, you can find that at filmspotting.net or in Apple Podcasts. Josh, how did you survive the Thanksgiving travel, and how was Colonial Williamsburg? Colonial Williamsburg was lovely. The trip got off to a bit of a rough start. We had a tight window between school getting out and catching our flight. I saw a bit about this on Facebook. Used Uber? Turns out the guy picks us up and says, well, I got to stop at home. My cash is in my other pair of pants. And the reason he had to do that is because he also still needed gas. Now, I have to stop you here and ask, did you consider just paying for the gas? He didn't didn't give us a chance. Like all of a sudden I noticed, okay, this is a little different route than the way I take to the airport. And, you know, a lot of times that happens with Uber because they're using – Google Maps or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he pulls up in front of a house. And I thought, this is really not the route I take. (laughs) He didn't tell you first. No, he says, I got to run in. My money's in my other pair of pants. Good times. 
He didn't even have pants on. That should have been my first warning that <laughs> yeah. something was amiss. Yeah, but otherwise, turkey was good. We ma- Yeah, we made it. For all that, he got us there on time. He made up for it. And okay. uh, it was a lovely trip to the East Coast. Yeah, we had a decent time back in Iowa, as always, of course, spending time with family. And I did make it out to Portland, Oregon for my first time ever. Gorgeous, a little gray, but Most it was warm. Most people don't go to yeah. Iowa by Portland. That's true, but we did. Okay. We went to Iowa first, then Portland, then back to Iowa. Okay. And (laughs) Sarah and I had a good time. We surprised my sister Melissa for her 40th birthday, and I also had a meetup with some film spotting listeners, and I wanted to thank those listeners. We had a great time talking film and talking film spotting. Andrew, Evan, and Eleanor, those two I went to college with at Grinnell. It was great catching up with them. I don't think I've seen them since graduation. Steve, Randall, and Hisham also showed up. Nice. So it was a good gathering. We... That's the two of us managed to catch up on a few movies over the holiday weekend, some of which we will get to later in the show. You caught a couple of new releases. But before the end of the year, the top 10 is approaching. The screeners are here. We are frantically trying to watch as much stuff as we can. We thought it was worth honoring the 10th anniversary of a landmark movie year, 2007. 2007 had these top tier directors all working and not only just putting out movies, but really Films that have been among their most acclaimed. Paul Thomas Anderson, which is why we're doing There Will Be Blood. That's the year it came out. The Coen brothers, as we mentioned, had No Country for Old Men. But Wes Anderson, Edgar Wright, Todd Haynes, Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, David Cronenberg, Danny Boyle, Sidney Lumet, and Ridley Scott all gave us films in 2007. We also had one of Pixar's best, some great comedies, some genre movies, a couple of good musicals. I see here Sam put a note that there was also one great yeah. musical. I can only assume he's referring to High School Musical 2. Mm. I'm, I'm a High School Musical 3 guy myself, right. but he knows maybe that. Sam likes that one the best. He knows that. Maybe he's actually thinking of Once, which is a movie he memorably got wrong. Okay. <laughs> and we'll pretty much admit to that now that he didn't appreciate it yeah. enough. Once a, li- once a little it. better than High School Musical 2. A little bit. We'll talk 2007, I'm pretty sure, in more detail when we get to this week's top five. We are sharing our favorite, the best movie years. Our mission for this top five, basically, it's the old school film spotting deathmatch, film spotting madness approach. We can save all the films from only five movie years. Which five do you choose? And I'm just going to say it right now. I had so much trouble with this top five. I have changed my order 17 times, and I'm not sure that I'm done changing my order, even though we've started talking. Well, it's basically because we are burning a century of cinema. The dustbin of history. They're gone forever. Oh, yeah, a little pressure. It is all about stakes here on Film Spotting. We will get to that top five. Plus, podcast listeners will get your thoughts, Josh, on Pixar's Coco and the Netflix exclusive Mudbound. But first, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood may not have won a Best Picture Oscar, but 10 years later, it has become the consensus pick for the best film of the 21st century. Is that reputation deserved? Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. You will be cast up and thrust back to perdition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. 
That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. Yes, Adam, back in 2007, I did not drink the milkshake. Now, I don't want to overstate my underappreciation of Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. It was among my favorite films of the year. I ranked it three and a half out of four stars. You're just a contrarian and you wanted to irritate people. I know. (laughs) It's true. I didn't have it on my top ten list. More on that when we get to our top five movie years later in the show. It sounds like you're in a less shameful but somewhat similar boat, though. There Will Be Blood was, what did you say before, number seven? Number six. Number six on your top ten list for that And I do feel shame about it. Well, yeah, I'm assuming you'd have it higher Mm -hmm. now after giving it another look. We'll get to your rankings probably later in the show as well. For now, I'm less interested in the numbers game, the rankings game. For this sacred cow review of There Will Be Blood, Anderson's loose adaptation of an Upton Sinclair novel about an ambitious oil man played by Daniel Day-Lewis in early 20th century America, I want to know exactly how the movie on this revisit struck you as even better than we both might have originally thought. I guess you could surprise me and say that the film isn't as great as all that, but that would really be a shocker. So let's forego any sense of suspense and tell me, in what ways has There Will Be Blood only aged like a fine wine or, in this case, a magnificent milkshake? <laughs> well, I don't know that it got significantly better for me. And even I mentioned The Force Awakens and we reconsidered that earlier. And I had a little bit of a shift. I liked it a lot then. I liked it a little bit more even now. And I did come around a little bit on one of my criticisms of the movie. I'm not really in a different position with There Will Be Blood, and maybe we will get to some of my original comments when we reviewed it in 2007. I'd actually seen it twice before we reviewed it, which almost never happens, but I had had a weird reaction to the very first screening where I think I was so taken aback, especially by the last 20 minutes Hmm. and Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, that it shook me in a way that kind of undid the whole film. And then when I saw it a second time a week or two later... I was able to settle in and get in sync with the performance and the physicality of it and the mannerisms of it and and really the timing and everything is just so amazing about what Daniel Day-Lewis is doing there. I had the same reaction to the performance this time. So with nothing really changing for me, I can point to some of the little touches, things that I don't remember from those two viewings in 2007 or little touches I didn't notice at all but did this time, like when Daniel Plainview basically discovers that he's going to take in this baby that's now been left to him because the father has died in an accident. He's all smothered in oil, and he gives him just this little touch on the forehead that basically mimics a baptism. And it makes sense that it would be the oil that is baptizing young H.W. That then fits in not only, obviously, with the religious elements of the story with the Paul Dano character and with the I abandoned my child sequence there in the church where he does have to kind of sell his soul by faking to give his soul over to the Lord. But even aside from that blatant stuff, I was struck this time, Josh, by the mystery, the way Paul Thomas Anderson just gives us these little mysterious elements like we never see Paul again, the brother who Dano plays. He plays both the characters, and we never really hear from him again, but there's something inherently biblical about those two brothers and one going off and one being left behind. And then that's mirrored later by, of course, Daniel's brother or 
so-called brother showing up on the scene as well. The first pitch, the first big I'm an oil man pitch that we see where he's talking to the crowd, I love the way the camera just subtly kind of starts to shift off of Daniel and kind of focus on the kid almost as if we're there in the crowd and it's, it's our point of view looking at the kid, studying the kid, trying to believe that he really is this family man that he is purporting himself to be. But then immediately our focus is in back pretty quickly on Daniel and his sales pitch. The way PTA shoots faces in crowds and the way people in space are revealed, that scene where we meet Paul, where he comes and asks for money, he'll tell him where there is some oil. We don't even see Kieran Hines, who plays Daniel Plainview's right-hand man. We don't even see him in the initial shot. We think it's two people having a conversation and the way the camera just kind of subtly moves. It just adds to this whole kind of enigmatic air of this film, the mysterious quality of this movie. And then we'll talk about the score, probably, the Johnny Greenwood score, in a little bit more detail. I don't know if we hear it in other points that I miss, but the first moment of music we hear as we see that mountain, before we even see Daniel Plainview, the opening shot of the film, basically, that's mirrored later by that exact same sound coming up when Daniel is doing essentially the exact same activity. He's digging in the ground, only he's burying someone. And then even that visual touch, that transition from the present day that the whole film has taken place in, and that it jumps ahead at the end about... 10 or 15 years, I guess, watching Mary and H.W. playing, and they're just jumping off basically a porch. And as soon as I think Mary jumps in that downward motion, that's then matched by sort of an opposite action of her raising, and now I don't remember what it is, but she's raising something to her as she is actually getting married to H.W. So it goes without saying that this is an amazing film to look at. In terms of the Robert Ellsworth cinematography and the way the camera moves and the framing, as I touched on, but I did discover a bunch of touches. Like I said, I didn't really notice the first time, and even the way he just dispenses information, I think, is really one of the wonders of this film. That is fascinating that you had that initial reaction to the performance or plain view as a character, because I think if there's anything that maybe kept me from rightly putting it in my top 10 list where it absolutely should have been was that I, too, wrestled with that performance a little bit. And not just because it's so large, but I think it was at odds with what I initially thought There Will Be Blood was doing, was giving us a very particular character study. Uh, and I did acknowledge, I, I think I even wrote in my original review, that you know, Plainview is, is basically a model for all that America has to offer. This viewing, which mm-hmm. is my first one, I believe, since 2007 or maybe in 2008 I watched it, he is capitalism. He's not a character. He is this monstrous force. And Day-Lewis is, to my mind, not even bothering to play a human being. And I don't mean that he doesn't give him human shading and a three-dimensional character. He absolutely does that. But for me, the entire focus is on making one man represent the drive and voraciousness of capitalism as it's been expressed in America. So that's why it's so big. I like these touches that the movie takes its time establishing him as a hard worker at the beginning, mm-hmm. those opening yep. sequences where he's all alone trying to find, I'm not sure if it's oil at that point or coal or perhaps. Or something. Yeah. Um, he does the job right. That's part of his pitch, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a hard worker and I will do things right. These are all good things. Yes. These are capitalist attributes that we might praise. 
But he's still a monster in that he's all-consuming. He's never satiated no. with what he has achieved. It's more, more, more. We get a little throwaway line at one point when he talks about finding a new way to transport the oil and avoid the railroads. Then we'll be making real money. This is a guy who's already obscenely wealthy, but that's his focus. And maybe one of the more famous lines, I have a competition in me. Mm -hmm. And so it helped me to maybe reorient myself to to really what I should have picked up the first time. And, and I know some other people have praised the movie this way, but maybe it's something that takes a little bit more time. This is a film that came out, what, a year or two before the recession in America and in some ways um, predicts that or at least – characterizes the sort of greed that led to something like mm -hmm. that in a wonderfully dramatic film that I appreciated as uh, another way I initially described it is as if Terrence Malick had directed Citizen Kane because I think it's taking on those huge grand historical American themes but with a poeticism that we don't often get in historical dramas. Mm -hmm. I even like you mentioned H.W. and this viewing – the whole purpose of that character made more sense to me because he may be taking this kid as he admits at one point, you were just a cute face to get me to close these deals. I think that's true to an extent. What I think that kid was really there for is as a depository for Plainview's wealth when he dies because one thing – it's that more, more, more thing. All he wants is that this wealth he's earned to – be put somewhere safe and more than that, where it can exponentially spread some more through the next generation. Mm -hmm. I think that's why he's so intent on having a son and having him be in the business so that his money will continue. And you're So then talking... why, Josh, at the end, isn't he, and we are going to get to the end because this movie's 10 years old and if you're listening, well, we're going to spoil it. We assume you've seen it. Why doesn't he turn over his wealth to him? Why isn't he well, more willing son, to see him? The son breaks from him. And I think As there's a, partner, a recognition yeah. there. It's it's the son. They're not in good terms. You definitely get that sense. But the son initiates that mm -hmm. break. And I think once he sees that, then he – it's almost like, oh, I'm going to break up with you before you break up with me. That sort of dynamic. Um, and, and just one more thing on the, on the capitalism uh, angle is that this even plays into the camera work too, which is always expansive. Anderson is always – and Robert Elswit, right? Is that the cinematographer? Mm -hmm. They're always trying to take in – this massive expanse of America, and that can be beautiful, but here it has this menacing quality where it's that greedy eye as if the camera is saying, this, I can have all this. Mm -hmm. I will have all this. Yeah. And so, yeah, this this is, um, you know, duly praised. It was my number three film of – actually, my number four film of the film spotting era when we did that top five at our 500th show, the live show back in 2014. And I don't know that I can kind of sum up my overall feelings or take on the film better than I tried to then. And this echoes something you just said, Josh, in terms of PTA. I think it's especially true here, but I think it's true really of all of his films. He has that expansive scope and scale, and yet the stories, when you really – boil them down are these very intimate stories. They're about a closed, tight-knit community or group of a couple people usually, and yet they are set against this backdrop of the grand, absurd, chaotic, unfolding experiment that is America. Now, I do want to go back to something you brought up in terms of the Plainview character and what he stands for. I do see this film as kind of the apotheosis of all of Anderson's work in terms of looking at the way he explores con men, 
dysfunctional families. Oftentimes it is fathers and sons, religion and its role in society, and just the notion of ambition in general. But I think violence too, and I'm sure we can discuss what the title maybe stands for, but it does seem like there is an inevitability of this movie. There's a lot of violence in the movie right from the very beginning. This is dangerous work these men are doing, but I do think he is suggesting something about the way capitalism does create, but it inherently then also requires some form of destruction to balance that out a little bit. So there is this kind of selling of yourself or subjugation of your soul, of your humanity in return for all those things that you think you want. And in fact, there is a tragic element to Plainview, I think, that I did notice this time that maybe I didn't fully appreciate the first or second time around in that I do think he genuinely loves his son. I think that he has a terrible way of showing it. But, for example, when his son is hurt in that big accident, his immediate focus is his son and trying to help him. Uh... It is. No, I mean, I paid close attention to it because he does then leave him. He does leave him. Again, that's the crucial choice. And that's where he abandons him. He abandons him there. Yeah. hundred percent. But he immediately, his immediate instinct he is to go there, and yes. take and him down danger and, and to, to rescue and him. to care for him. Again, he's not a good father, but that is his instinct. And I think that that instinct is important. But there's also that conversation he has the first time where he meets with the standard oil men. And they want to take everything from him. They want to make him even more wealthy than he is. He can basically retire and have all this money. And he says, what will I do? Mm -hmm. What will I do when I have everything? And that basically comes to fruition. He kind of fulfills that sad destiny by the end of the film, right? He gets to a point where he does have everything. He has nothing more to do. And I think that that point about doing something, that action is so crucial to this movie and the success of the movie. I love from the very beginning, you touched on it, PTA's determination and his insistence on not spoon feeding us information, backstory, psychology. It's just all about action, yeah. which this is what that time and that era was about is sort of making your way in the world, that so-called rugged individualism that's matched in the sheer will and determination of Plainview himself, who not only is willing to work out there and suffer alone to find some kind of fortune. But when he gets hurt in the process, he drags himself back to town with a broken leg. But here's the thing I wanted to ask you. Is it possible that the bigger con man, and in fact, the more abominable human being in this film, or at least they're on equal ground, is the Paul Dano character? Because yeah. he might actually be even less true to his nature than Daniel Plainview is, who at least understands himself, is self-aware, I believe. Whereas Dano, I think, is mostly still trying to not only fool everyone around him, but fool himself in the process. And I think that Plainview sees in him someone who has that ambition, a similar ambition and drive that he has, but he knows that he can exploit it. And I think he knows that he doesn't have that self-awareness, and that is what he can exploit. So that moment when Dano comes to him and says, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to perform this blessing of the, the Derek. That is just one of these beautiful moments where you can see in Plainview's eyes that he knows that he can get some mileage out of this. And he does. He basically <laughs> then, when the time comes, puts him in his place by taking over that role and saying, no, I'm the one truly in control here. And this is another moment, Josh, that I didn't really pay attention to on those first couple of viewings. How about the way PTA lingers on Paul Dano? As the blessing completes 
and he just holds on him with his little flock, the the women and a few men around him. And Dano has to do that thing that we've all probably done at some point in our lives where you think it's going to be your big moment and you're standing there waiting for the congratulations or whatever, and then it doesn't come and it's awkward and embarrassing. And then you're kind of like, now do I just walk away or yeah. what? And and he gets, that's a great joke in this film. And the best thing about Dano's performance is how long he keeps hoping. Yeah. Because the rest of the crowd has scattered. It's just those just people waits. you mentioned. And even they start to like wander away and he's still kind of standing there like, maybe he'll ask me now, maybe now. Right. Yeah. I, I think I like Dano in this film. I, I think that he matches Day-Lewis in intensity in a way that the parts call for. Clearly Plainview is going to be the alpha male in this dynamic. Uh, And I think maybe, you know, it's interesting to watch it in retrospect when Dano has, I think some people write him off as an actor that's too quirky or too ticky or Mm -hmm. can go too big in different areas. And and maybe this put him off in a little different direction. You know, it gave him a leash, but it works for this film. Absolutely, I feel. And I did want to talk about uh, the role of religion here because the parallel works absolutely very strongly on that personal level you're mm-hmm. talking about, that intimate level where these are two men who are trying to make power plays for the hearts and minds of this one town, of little Boston. And Eli, the preacher, he has the town pretty much in his hand when Plainview comes, and that starts to shift on him. So there's this great back and forth of who's going to take the position of running this town. I really like that. I, the parallel for me is not quite as clear once we extrapolate that into these broader themes. So if Plainview is capitalism and Eli is religion, um, obviously I like the false prophet mm-hmm. you know, line and how he is a con man as well. Yeah. Um, more of a con man, I would agree, than mm-hmm. Plainview. I think there's one instance where we see Plainview cheating someone, purposely cheating someone, but otherwise you get the sense that he's ruthless but perhaps not unscrupulous. So, I agree. I okay. agree with that. I don't think he really takes advantage of someone that we see until he's taking advantage of Dano. Yeah, there's there's something about a price or a property grab or something where he does, and it stood out to me because I thought, oh, okay, so you will cross that line. But absolutely, Eli is the bigger con man. Um But I'm still not quite sure what the movie is saying then about religion beyond – like how does it equate with capitalism, with the the negative aspects of capitalism that the movie is exposing? um, I'm trying to fit together what are those negative aspects of religion that the movie is equally exposing. I feel like that weight might be a little off. And, and, you know – You have to say this, too. Even this false prophet in that baptism scene, which is my favorite scene in the film, I think it's the most powerful moment, this false prophet gets a true confession out of Plainview. Mm -hmm. He knows he has to do it to get the deal. That's why he's doing it. But when he says, let me get out of here, Mm -hmm. he mumbles it under his breath because he doesn't want that to be part of the performance because that's true. That's when he has confessed that he abandoned his son and He's not just saying that because he has to. It's because it's what happened. You've come here and you've brought good and wealth, but you have also brought your bad habits as a backslider. You've lusted after women and you have abandoned your child. Your child that you raised, you have abandoned all because he was sick and you have sinned. So say it now. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Louder, Daniel! I am a sinner! I am a sinner. I am sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. I want the blood. I want the blood. You have abandoned your child. 
I've abandoned my child. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. Say it, say it. I've abandoned my child. Say it louder, say it louder. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Beg for the blood. Now, he doesn't follow the confession with repentance. No. Right? So, so it does end there. And the performances in that sequence, for Day-Lewis to play all those different notes to let us in on what's bravado, mm-hmm. what's real, what's pure rage, and keep us wondering, is this guy going to break yeah. and lose it? Absolutely. I mean, that that's a scene for the ages. Yeah, I think maybe my favorite moment in the whole film is just one reaction shot where Daniel Day-Lewis turns to his right and looks mm-hmm. at Paul Dano because he's already pushed him so far and then he pushes him again. And it's as if Plainview is just with his eyes saying, I can't believe you just asked me yes. to do that, you know, except but, except much worse. But, I'm also going to strangle you after you ask yes, me to do that. There's a threat there for sure. But part of that, the reason he's giving them that look is because he's pushing him there. And I'm not saying Eli believes right. in any of this actual repentance, but nevertheless, that's when he gets pushed to a true confession. Yeah. So that that's just an interesting dynamic in this like uh, this capitalism and religion as two sides of the same coin thing that yeah. the movie that the movie is going for. Right. I, d- I don't see them as having to be separate sides. I think for Paul Thomas Anderson, they are all part of the same American thing and this need, this compulsion to take advantage of others in order to get ahead yourself. Religion is just another vehicle like business is. And even though you can wrap yourself in a sort of piety, the same way Plainview does by pretending to be this family man. Yeah, we're we a see, family business. Yeah, we we're see a, this, yeah. this mirrored in the way he says he's a man of God when he really at his core just wants not only money. It is about capitalism there too. He wants money, but he just wants power. Now right. for me, Josh, on third viewing, Paul Dano still isn't pulling it off. Really? He's not terrible. He's he's Cause he not. He can't compete with Day Lewis. Yeah, I or think the, that's the part itself. I think that's part of it, and I think where I really notice it is in the church scenes, especially the first one, not the one where he does provoke the confession. When he's casting out because the spirit. yeah, when he's casting out the spirit and some of those other scenes, I, I just think that Dano at that point anyway as an actor, because I've come to really like him in a lot of movies since then. He just doesn't have the presence to convince me that he isn't the fraudulent kind of phony huckster that he is. I see that in him right away, and I am not as incisive a man as Daniel Plainview is, who certainly sees it right right away. But I think that his performance just isn't able to match that intensity, fair to say, of Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie. But also, I think in those performance scenes, the ones that are truly about performance, you've got Day-Lewis sitting there, Plainview watching him at the end of it says to him, you know, quite a show you put on there. And I'm still watching it again going, no, I don't believe I don't believe the flock following him. I don't believe maybe I've just seen too many evangelists I was on say, TV. Have you ever watched televangelism? Yeah, I have. They're worse than Paul Dano. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I think that's the tricky part of the there's role. There's more conviction. There's more there's, force. I think the challenge here, it's thankless in a way in that Dano has to let us in on the fact that he is a huckster, you know? So so he can't be convincing us thoroughly because then he's not giving that side of Eli that is the showman, that is the con man. And he's also, you know, behind the eight ball in that 
yes, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, but also the structure of this story is that Eli is always going to get the short end of mm-hmm. this relationship stick. Yeah. So, you know, clearly Day-Lewis gives the better performance, but but I think for what the story needs, I, I thought Dano was just fine. I did want to pose a question that I don't know that I posed in the initial review here on the show 10 years ago, and I don't know that it's ever really come up, but... It's something I found in my original notes, and I do think it's at least worth something to chew on. We talked about the end of the film a little bit and that conversation between Daniel and H.W. and that severing of ties. And one of the notes I had was, is it possible that it's not purely Plainview being the worst father ever, saying the worst things he could ever say to cause his son to run off? It's really difficult to watch a father say those things to his son. Is it possible, Josh, that there is something deeper going on and actually something underneath it all a little bit benevolent? Is Daniel Plainview, by giving his son full reason to see the true monster that his father is, is he giving him a chance to make a clean break from him? Is he actually giving his son a gift by allowing him to walk out of there and know that he never has to look back and that he can now move forward truly as his own man in this world? And he wouldn't have been able to do that without that severing with his father. Yeah, I think it is a gift. I don't think it's an intentional one. I mean, I think H.W. is absolutely, to get out of these shadows is absolutely better off. And if anything, maybe that's, you know, the note of hope that P.J. wants Mm -hmm. to leave in the film. Um, Not that he's a filmmaker that needs hopeful endings, but it gives some light there. That scene worked better for me this time because I appreciated the delicacy of Russell Harvard's performance as the adult Mm -hmm. H.W. He's delivering this because of that accident via sign language. And this is something that has always troubled Daniel is that his son needs this assistance, right? It's a sign of weakness. And here he just loses it over the fact that they have to have this huge conversation via sign language. Can we be alone? This is my closest associate. He hears everything. I'd prefer to speak to you in private. You can't speak. So why don't you flap your hands about and have what's-his-name tell me where you've been. Or do you think I don't know? This is hard for me to say. I'll tell you first. I love you very much. I've learned to love what I do because of you. I was struck by the the elegance, the respectfulness yep. of this speech that H.W. gives via sign language. Right. And what it does is it puts him at polar opposite in terms of temperament, in terms of ambition, goals, values to his adopted father. And that's why Plainview makes that comment about – wants to make it clear they're not blood, right? Because this is an embarrassment if it was from his seed. And here we're going back to biblical stuff again. Huh. If this kid – turned out this way, both his lack of ambition, his lack of ruthlessness, and this physical weakness, what he sees as a weakness, then it's a shame on plain view. And there is, I mean, it's just the ultimate for me, rock bottom for plain view where he's lost it in terms of his competition. 
that drove him for the reasons you talked about, and that's on the larger scale, but he's also lost it on this intimate level where he's just going to cut this, this final tie to humanity that he really has. I should have known that under this all these past years you've been building your hate for me piece by piece. I don't even know who you are because you have none of me in you. You're someone else's. This anger, your maliciousness, backwards dealings with me. You're an orphan from a basket in the middle of the desert. And I took you for no other reason than I needed a sweet face to buy land. You get that? So now you know. Look at me. You're lower than a bastard. Yeah, it's hard for me, I will admit, to see any kind of goodness or enough sense in him at that point to actually have any kind of plan in place. He he really has degraded to that monster that he is at this point in the movie. And yet there's a part of me, I think it's maybe because PTA does such a fascinating job of never spelling out Plainview's motivations. We're always trying to figure out what is really driving him. And in that scene, there's a part of me that I guess wants to cling to some notion that he still is self-aware even in that moment and is giving his, his son his freedom by letting him go. We do have to talk about the score because for me, I don't know that I can think of a better one off the top of my head. I especially <laughs> felt that again the third time. And speaking of overall sound, I suppose, we've talked a little bit about the way Paul Thomas Anderson shoots the action at the beginning of the film. It is almost like a silent movie, except for that score. The first 14 minutes and 30 seconds of this movie, there's no dialogue. Yeah. Sarah was watching it with me. She'd never seen this movie before. And she turned to me in all seriousness and said, are they all deaf mutes? She thought all the men working sure, like yeah. maybe didn't talk or couldn't hear because they just never do. But we get that great score, which does so much subtle but important work here. And sometimes not so yeah, subtle, like at the say, beginning. But I think there are other moments where it really is. It's just underneath, just adding to this sense constant. of... It's constant, but it's, it's just creating this sense of alienation and isolation and paranoia, but in really subtle ways. Now, there are those moments like that screeching sound we get at the beginning that comes back into play later when we're seeing the landscape. And for me, it's just inherently primal. Mm -hmm. It's just reflecting, it's, it's this almost non-human made sound. It feels so appropriate to this landscape and the way the landscape is being exploited. Yeah, I can't think of many scores that are this intricately embedded with what the movie's consciousness is. I think that's why it works. This whole thing buzzes with doom, right? And sometimes it does it loudly and sometimes it is yes. that softer buzz that that you're talking about too. I think it reminded me of something extraterrestrial. I thought of 2001. The dissonance mm -hmm. here is very evocative of 2001. Um, and it's, you know, here the oil is like the monolith, you know, calling them. And I absolutely love how Greenwood incorporates that really, as you said, into almost every minute of the movie. There Will Be Blood is available to rent or stream wherever milkshakes are sold, I'm sure. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So last time we played Massacre Theater, Adam, I may have been too good. We got some uh -huh. complaints that it was too easy to identify. Nevertheless, we'll reveal the movie we massacred next, and then we'll get to our top five movie years. Stay with us. Stay with us. 
guy Johnny, a true American hero, to be played by me. He has it all. Good luck, many friends, and also maybe Johnny is vampire. We'll see. James Franco there as the one and only Tommy Wiseau in The Disaster Artist. Franco is also the director of the film, which is about the making of The Room, the 2003 cult film that has become basically the Plan 9 from Outer Space of our age. Uh, So bad it's good movie that regularly plays to interactive midnight movie screenings all over the country. Josh, I don't know if you want to get into it now, maybe save it for next week, but you did catch up with... The Room, how was the viewing experience from your couch, not surrounded by a bunch of hooligans throwing things at the screen? I was alone watching The Room and happy to do it that way. I think I would have been way too uncomfortable with another human nearby me. Wow. An experience. It's something. We'll, we, we will get into it. My only request is when we do talk about it, can we awkwardly toss back and forth the football? I love it. Okay. We can definitely make that happen. The Disaster Artist opens in limited release this weekend, including here in Chicago. And our plan for next week's show is to review The Disaster Artist, probably talk about The Room. That means I need to revisit The Room. And we're going to share our top five best worst movies. And maybe I shouldn't say we're going to share. We are going to share with the help of Rob Hill. He is the author of The Bad Movie Bible. And that reminds me that we may have some other catching up on so-called bad movies to do for this show, which is hard when we have so many other movies we want to see this time of year. But if we want to be prepared. It's also hard because I looked, Rob sent us some of the titles he was considering. These are hard to find. Are they? I mean, in addition to him having excellent taste in bad movies, he's like a detective to track these things down. So I think we're going to largely hand this over to Rob and follow his lead. We do want to remind you about Film Spotting T-shirts. December 4th through the 8th, they are on sale. You can find more information at filmspotting.net. Just click on shop. Over at filmspotting.net, if you click on events, you can also find out about free movie passes, and we have those to give away for Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water, starring Michael Shannon, and I can't believe I am Sally Hawkins. I was going to say I was blanking on her name, but I pulled it out. I have seen the trailer now for this movie, and I'm really, really upset about it. You're upset? Oh, because it gave away too much I feel like there's no way it didn't tell me the entire plot of the movie. I'm sure it's still going to be rewarding, and it's not going to matter, but man, is it just Exhibit 72 and why I hate watching trailers. So I encourage you not to watch the trailer if you haven't. Just go see the film. See it for free. See it before it plays. Here in theaters, you can do that again. Filmspotting.net slash events. It's time now for a little bit of Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene. Hello, everybody. I'm Stu Nahan. I'd like you to meet this young man. His name, Jeff Spicoli. And Jeff, congratulations to you. Things look kind of rough out there today. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did battle some humongous waves. 
But, you know, just like I told the guy on ABC, danger is my business. Let me ask you a question. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's, it's a way of life, no hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> Where'd you get this jacket? I got this in the network. Let me ask you a question. What's next for Jeff Spicoli? <laughs> Headed over to the Australian and the Hawaiian internationals. And me and Mick are going to wing on over to London and jam with the Stones. That was Sean Penn as the one and only Jeff Spicoli and Stu Nahan as, well, the one and only Stu Nahan yeah. who was playing himself in 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Written by Cameron Crowe, it was based on his own book, and it was directed by Amy Heckerling, who was making her directing debut. Yeah, and we have to give some credit here to Aaron Teachman, longtime listener in Washington, D.C., the only one who at least acknowledged it. I'm sure one or two other listeners out there got it, but we did change the name of Jeff Spicoli to Alex Dwyer. That's actually Sean Penn's character's name in the movie Taps, and Aaron did get that. The Massacre was part of a show that also included our review of Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird and our top five female-directed debuts. Before we get to some feedback, a quick note on that list. I said during that top five that I was going to post what I thought was as complete a list as possible of all the female-directed debuts over on Letterboxd. And if you can't find that, just go to filmspotting.net, click on this episode, 658, or click on the Lady Bird episode, 657, and you can find a direct link there in the show notes. But I had come up with, I think, about 62 female-directed debuts. Didn't think it was completely comprehensive, but thought it was close. Man, the emails and the comments have been coming in. I think that list legitimately might be up to like 120 now. Oh, you're kidding. No, well, it just keeps growing. So One of the good reasons for doing a list like yep. this, right? Everyone can add to it. Indeed. Dylan Bro is our first commenter, and I love the fact that his name's Bro. I think you need to say Bro like Jeff Spicoli would. Bro! Josh. I was immediately delighted, Dylan says, by this episode's Massacre Theater edition, and not just because of the seamless voice work. Perhaps my love for this film can be best conveyed by the fact that I named my cat Mr. Hand. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and particularly this Jeff Spicoli scene, is a longtime favorite amongst friends with whom I just recently rewatched the film for the umpteenth time. The poignant cultural nostalgia only gets more impactful with time. Crow and Heckerling captured the 80s teen experience and the rise of shopping mall self-expressionism for which that era is so well known. Trey Richmond from Virginia asks, so what does Fast Times at Ridgemont High have to do with this episode? Well, Fast Times was the directorial debut of Amy Heckerling, who was born in the Bronx, New York. So was Sir Ronan, star of Lady Bird. I did have not fact check. I did not fact check this, but I mean, congrats to Trey for somehow knowing that and pulling out that connection. Maybe we do need to verify that. We have more connections, though. Andre Cadeau, Charlottesville, Virginia. Interestingly, Sir Ronan appeared in Heckerling's 2007 film, I could never be your woman. Did not know so that. So another connection to Heckerling and to 2007, the year that basically inspired this show. Uh, Allison Hale has some praise for me here. Josh was totally inhabiting the role of Spicoli. I am now anxious to see what Josh can do with other Sean Penn roles. Maybe as Terrence in Angry Birds? No, that's not. He's not an Angry <laughs> Allison, Birds, is he? from her email was a surprise to learn that as we are here. <laughs> okay. Dave Martin says, so your Massacre Theater scene was pretty easy, but not because of Josh's pretty good Sean Penn Valley guy voice. Pretty good. Just pretty good. Come on. But because of Adam's character's name, Stu Nahan may have other credits to his name, but I'm aware of only two. The Rocky films, one through three, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So, Stu Nahan, if Dave hadn't pointed this out, I don't think I would have made the connection, but I did just watch 
either the closing fight scene from Rocky 1 or Rocky 2, I can't remember, about two or three months ago. Just came on, and I was watching it. And yes, it's Stu Nahan. He's the guy who's announcing the boxing scene. I immediately could remember him in my mind. It matches this scene. So for a while there, he must have been the go-to guy, right, for the sports announcer. It's such a good sports announcer name, too. Stu Nahan. I love it. More connections here between Fast Times and Lady Bird coming from Danny Hensel. He's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, he really did his homework here. Of course, thematically, he says, Californian high schoolers in awkward stepsister cities. Cameron Crowe's book took place in San Diego, not quite Los Angeles, and Lady Bird is set in Sacramento. Lady Bird herself acknowledges the city's relationship to San Francisco twice in the movie. Another one, both movies take place over one school year. Both the Fast Times subplots are echoed in Lady Bird. Spicoli's fights with Mr. Hand are akin to Lady Bird's prank against the Mother Superior. And Brad's jobs are reminiscent of the McPherson family's financial struggles. Okay, Danny says that one's a bit weak. I didn't think it was weak. Well, he's not done. A number of respected actors make early appearances in both. Eric Stoltz, Forrest Whitaker, Nick Cage, Jennifer Jason Lee. Then, moving to Lady Bird, besides the still young Sir Ronan, there's Lucas Hedges, Timothy Chalamet, Beanie Feldstein, Odea Rush, Catherine Newton, and even Danielle McDonald of Patty Cakes is in one shot. Jennifer Jason Lee was married to Noah Baumbach and starred in Greenberg with Baumbach's yes. current partner, Greta Gerwig. And don't forget Stoltz, who's in Baumbach's first three movies. Unbelievable. I oh, mean, Danny was working Danny, overtime. Danny needs a film spotting T-shirt. I think we might just have to gift him one for all of that information. Of course, we considered all of those when we passed. Yes, Fast we times. did. Danny, can you check if Saoirse Ronan was really born in the yeah, Bronx? Look that up for us. Thank you, Dave Melican in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I just love this. My friend and I went to Fast Times with his big sister and her boyfriend. My friend and I hid in the car's trunk as we drove by the ticket booth, so we wouldn't have to pay. And now that drive-in theater is closed. Partially my fault. Dave, I mean, Dave, what Dave. what could a ticket have cost in '82 at the drive-in? About a buck fifty. Too much for Dave, and, apparently. And I'm trying to imagine me, Mister Hyper Claustrophobia, being stuck in a car's trunk. It would have to be for 1.5 million dollars in order for me to hide in a car's trunk. Fast Times at Ridgemont High wouldn't have been worth it, huh? Not Probably for not. You. And I and I'm a big fan of the film. All right, one more here from Jim in Bridgeport. Who's not happy with us? Fast Times at Ridgemont High, duh. And anyone who doesn't get this answer should be forced to eat a bag full of used DVDs that have been sitting unprotected under your best friend's couch since his college days. Come on, fellas, really? Fast Times, it's a classic. Everyone over the age of 39 has seen it. Look it up. Scientific fact. But if you're going to do something so obvious, can't you do some real camouflaging, starting out by not sounding exactly like an impression of Jess Spicoli? Like, here's some ideas. Make him sound like Grover from Sesame Street or John Houseman or even John Houston. Anyways, I don't want a shirt. I do want to hear a redo, though. I don't know. Do Captain Crunch's voice for Spicoli. <laughs> but do it. Do it for the kids, man. Do it for the kids. You got Jim, any others in there? No. Jim, clearly, Jim is not familiar with my process. If nothing, I am true to the text. Okay. I try to be true to the text. Now, we will take that under advisement for future shows, though I can say that I'm not the one who can do funny voices. But I do want to say, I'm sure some listeners could back me up on this or Sam could, that that was an old trick of ball games. Your predecessor. He to loved, do a different voice. Yeah, he loved okay. to take something that was very familiar and obvious and do some spin on it that no one would think well, of. Well, I, you know, that I believe is from the Juilliard School. I did not attend. <laughs> exactly. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat, which is not nearly as brimming as Jim and Bridgeport would have you believe, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Tanya McAvoy, who identifies herself as the proud recipient of the Jeff Spicoli Award among my friends in, you guessed it, 
Denver, Colorado. Okay, we're just we're not going to comment on that, Tanya. We're just going to congratulate you on winning your very own Film Spotting T-shirt. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your prize. Margaret just doesn't miss performances. If she can walk, crawl, or roll, she plays. The show must go on. No, dear. Margot must go on. I'm duly chastened for uh-huh. my perfect accent work. So I think we're going to hand this one over to you. you yeah, get I'm going to try the, the funny voice this time. Okay? Yeah. And that sound of agony you hear is Sam shrieking from Wisconsin right now. <laughs> he hates it. He hates it when I steal from you these moments of I think comedy you've got gold. This one. I think you've got this one. I'm a little worried. I'll about... lose it halfway through. <laughs> well, you know, we go for 10% of the accent. If you get that, yes. you're doing well. You got to do some banging on the table. Too. Oh, okay. Have these been stabilized? I did, not, gonna... I did not watch this. You got a lot to do enough. here. You're the special effects expert. But but it's I can't it's your part. I can't bang on the table for your part. I'm not prepared. Let's do but it. What else is new? You start it off. I'm gonna give you the action and we will say we probably don't need to give you any hints, but it ties in with our top five movie years conversation. Yes. That's, okay. That's true. And action. Listen, I just want you to know how honored I am to be studying under such... Oh, no. You listen. I just want you to know exactly who you are dealing with. How many women do you see in this kitchen? Well, I... I... Huh? Only me. Why do you think that is? Well, I... Because hawk cuisine is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules by stupid old men. Rules designed to make it impossible for women to enter this world. But still, I am here. How did this happen? Because, well, because you, uh... Because I am the toughest cook in this kitchen. I have worked too hard for too long to get here, and I'm not going to jeopardize it for some garbage boy who got lucky. Got it? And, and scene. scene. I'm going to say you were at a, a strong 43% 43? that was the correct accent. I'm garbage. 57. You got garbage. garbage. That counts for a lot. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. And really, it couldn't be more obvious. Your deadline is Monday, December 11th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. When life gets me down, I play my guitar. The rest of the world may follow the rules, but I must follow my heart. You know that feeling like there's a song in the air and it's playing just for you? So as promised, we wanted to take a couple of minutes to get your thoughts, Josh, on a couple of movies that you caught up with over the Thanksgiving break. That was a clip from Coco, the latest from Pixar. And we both have been cramming a lot of stuff in, nothing that I'm ready to talk about on air. I think these are all future releases or things that may come up in our top 10 films of the year roundtable. But you did see Coco. And I believe so far reactions to it have been very positive. It's set in Mexico about a boy, an aspiring musician who comes into conflict with his family, which long ago banned music after a great-great-grandfather abandoned his family to pursue a career in music. The boy's journey takes him to the land of the dead. It's co-directed by Pixar vet Lee Unkrich with Adrian Molina. So are you adding to the choruses of praise for Coco? Yeah, there are a lot of things to like about Coco. I think what stood out to me most is that what Pixar did for water with, you know, go back to Finding Nemo, and of course they've been perfecting that with further films, 
they do here for candlelight. The candles in this film are everywhere. It's pretty much set on Dia de los Muertos, this festival of remembering past loved ones. And so the families have these – they're kind of like altars called ofrendas where they'll put pictures of the family members and these candles and then foods that those family members used to appreciate or other things. And so this whole movie just glows. They even there are walls where the brick is cut out and they'll stick a candle in it and it has this delicacy that's so realistic for computer animation. Um, it, it's just beautiful. So I loved that. The movie does work its way up to a up level tear-jerking moment. Great. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Great. But and it's not quite as like debilitating as those opening scenes. So I'm up. not taking my kids. I'm going alone. Uh, well, I, you know, it's it depends if you want to cry yeah. in front of them. And it does involve a relationship with uh, this main character Miguel and his I believe it's a great-grandmother, so there's a comparison there to what's going on in Up and yeah, it just it, it rings you out and it earns it well. So I did like that. The movie might be a little overplotted. Things get very, very complicated. There are reveals. There are double crosses. Certainly younger audiences are going to be lost. I took my niece who's in kindergarten and though she liked a lot about it, I'm, she had no idea what was going on story-wise, a lot of it. So that maybe could have been reined back. But um, yeah, overall, I think this was this was a strong Pixar effort. I wouldn't say top tier, but I did appreciate it. If you are interested in, you know, this is also one of those examples of Disney and Pixar applaudingly trying to broaden their cultural view. Mm -hmm. But there's always the question of when does that lean towards appropriation, you know? And and I can't really speak to that in this particular context. So I would recommend Aisha Harris's great represent podcast, part of the Slate group of podcasts, she had two guests recently who talked about that, who knew much more about uh, Dia de los Muertos tradition and uh, could speak to the positive things that Coco does and the things that maybe were missteps. So overall, though, I would recommend it. We will link to that Aisha Harris podcast in our show notes at filmspotting.net. You also saw Mudbound, the latest from writer-director Dee Reese. She got a lot of attention for her debut film, Pariah, back in 2011. She also wrote and directed a Bessie Smith biopic for HBO in 2015 called Bessie. Mudbound is set in rural Mississippi just before and just after World War II. It's about two farming families, one black, one white, who work the same land. The black family rent the land and work the land owned by the white family. And both families have sons who return from fighting in the war, change from that experience. Great cast here, Carrie Mulligan, Mary J. Blige, Garrett Hedlund, and Jason Mitchell, who was very good as Eze in the NWA biopic, Straight Outta Compton. It is playing exclusively on Netflix. What did you think? The performances are absolutely fantastic, almost across the board. So that's definitely a strength. I think if Mudbound, overall, it's been praised, but I think if it's not getting that huge top 10 list type talk is because in some ways this is very conventional. It's it's handsomely shot. It's impressively assured for Rees being, you know, Pariah was a while ago, but she's still a relatively new filmmaker. And this feels like an assured, accomplished work. Uh, it has the stature of an old-fashioned prestige picture. But in other ways, this is really, really radical. I think uh, the questions it's concerned with are more urgent and contemporary, uh, and the emotions are way rawer than you might expect from a prestige picture. So those are just some of the things that I did like about it. Uh, It also has – it's drawn from a novel. So Rees co-wrote the script with Virgil Williams, and they're adapting Hillary Jordan's 2008 novel. And that's, I'm assuming, where they get this very poetic voiceover 
that is shared among the ensemble cast. So you'll hear from one character for a while, then you'll get the viewpoint of another character. And we've talked about sometimes I'm skeptical of voiceovers. Loved this. Hmm. Uh, probably because it is very novelistic. It gives you a sense of atmosphere and mood more than plot necessaries. Uh, so that worked. As a matter of fact, I, I missed it in the second half. The movie goes away from that, and some of the characters start stating what they're feeling. In a, it's odd, in a more direct way in dialogue with characters than they had been doing in their poetic voiceover. Mm-hmm. So I almost wish there had been more of it. Um, but the movie ends so strongly uh, in a way that'll that'll probably wreck you, and it's beautifully bookended with the way the movie opens. So uh, Mudbound, I think this. It's either going to get a theatrical release as well, or did it open here and there? I know we said it's exclusively in Netflix, but I thought I heard from someone who saw it in a theater, and I've been asked if I can see it in the theater, should I? And I would say absolutely, because, uh, again, the the camera work is gorgeous. There's uh, not only Malikian touches in that voiceover, but in some of the imagery as well. So, yeah, see it on Netflix for sure, but if you get a chance to catch it in a theater, if they end up putting it out there for like a Oscars consideration, mm-hmm. um, track it down. Yeah, it looks like it was maybe just L.A. and New York. Okay. But it did get a theatrical release before Thanksgiving. I don't know if it's still in theaters or not, so you'd have to look that up on your own. But definitely you can see Mudbound via Netflix and you can see Coco pretty much anywhere out in wide release right now. I am excited to catch up with both. If you've seen the films and agree or disagree with Josh's thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next, where we name the five best movie years. And all the others, and their movies, fade into oblivion like the photos in Back to the Future. Here's hoping one of us picked 1985. Stay with us. Dorothy, dear. It's Aunt Em, darling. Oh, Annie Em. It's you. Yes, darling. Hello there. Anybody home? I uh, I just dropped by because I heard the little girl got caught in the big... Well, she seems all right now. Yeah, she got quite a bump on the head. We kind of thought there for a minute she was going to leave us. Oh, but I did leave you, Uncle Henry. That's just the trouble. And I tried to get back for days and days. There, there. Lie quiet now. You just had a bad dream. That was Clara Blandick's Auntie M comforting Judy Garland's Dorothy back in Kansas after her Technicolor trip along the Yellow Brick Road in The Wizard of Oz. This week's Top 5 provided its own harrowing trip down the Yellow Brick Road that is the last century or so of movie making. Our Top 5 movie years going back to our discussion of There Will Be Blood, our Sacred Cow review of that film from 2007. 2007, arguably, and one or both of us may try to argue this here in a minute, one of the best cinema years ever. So our job was to pick five movie years from the last hundred or so to save. And I don't know about you, Josh, we can talk about this when we get into our criteria, but I really did only go back to 1939. That's where I started with this list, and we'll talk more about 39 and why here in a second. But instead of just five movies left on that desert island, we get all the movies from just these five years. And I said it earlier, 
wow, this was hard. I really did just redo my list. My five and four, I just threw two out and threw two more in right yes. before we started. I had to stop you because this would I'd never rearrange end. all day. Well, what are we doing here? I mean, <laughs> this, of all the pointless bickering that we've done. Don't tell me there this. are no stakes, that oh, this doesn't no, matter. That's, that's the problem is that forcing you to choose. Hopefully we were smart. We didn't coordinate. But if we have all the same five years, that was idiotic because we could have at least gotten together 10 years no, that we that's saved. that's true. Right? Yeah. But we didn't, we didn't coordinate <laughs> no, we didn't that, do so. that. Oh, man. <laughs> well, we've we already heard, screwed up. We have. We heard from Jim Kite, a listener, I think on Twitter today, who said, not sure if it is the best year. But 1939 is the most important year for American cinema. Not sure if movies dominate 20th century popular culture. So there's some stakes, Josh, without The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Stagecoach. Those are three huge ones from 1939, which is the year that most people, or a lot of people, we did hear from them on social media, point to as one of the best, if not the best, movie year ever. Beyond those three films, how about Ninotchka? Great film. Only Angels Have Wings from Howard Hawks. The Rules of the Game, Jean Renoir. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, not one of my favorites, but one that's beloved by many. How about Gone with the Wind, which I still haven't seen? That's one that's usually thrown in that quartet of huge films from 39. Young Mr. Lincoln, the John Ford movie, is very good. So 39 certainly a seminal cinema year. Did you mention The Women? I did not mention the women. The women's on there for me as well. That's why I gave 39 strong consideration, but yeah. Did not make the cut. So all of those great movies, gone. Okay. Well, before we get to the movies that are still around for all of us to enjoy, I did do a little bit of looking at the Pantheon, our Pantheon of 46 films that over the course of the 12 plus years of doing the show, we have anointed as so good or at least so personal in our appreciation for them that we set them aside for top five consideration. I thought it would be a decent place to start Mm -hmm. looking at the list of movies, seeing how the years stack out, and maybe using that as a little bit of an indicator or a guide to how to approach the list. Now, probably not a surprise of of those 46 movies, the decade that has the most entrance is, what would you say, Josh? It's going to be more recent. It's got to be something from maybe the 90s. Nope. Actually, the 1970s. Oh, really? You know, it's kind of that conventional wisdom cinephile Mm, decade. 11 movies from the 70s. Then it is more recent. The 80s in second place with nine. The 90s in third place with seven. The 2000s in fourth place with five. Then we go back to the 60s with four. The 50s with four, though that's not really fair because three of them are the Opu trilogy from Sachajit Ray. And then the 40s, three movies. The 2010s, two entries. And in last place, the 1930s, that film is The Wizard of Oz. There are 12 years with multiple Pantheon movies assigned to it. Ten with two. There are only two years that have three so, Which isn't bad. No, that's not bad. And we'll have to see how it shakes out on either of our lists. 1975, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. It's a formidable trio. Did you give those more weight then? No. Nope. Just in general when you were looking at different years? As or? you will hear in a moment, I obviously did not. Oh, boy. So all of that work <laughs> was for Kind nothing. of for nothing, but it's, it, it was fun. <laughs> it was a fun little endeavor for me. 1988, Josh, was the other year. And wow, how did I leave this year off? Die Hard. Grave of the Fireflies. Well, and the one movie that always stands out when people look at our Pantheon, and this goes back to mainly Sam and Maddie in their days here on the show. Midnight Run is exactly. the one yeah, people point so to. So 88 and 75 are the only two years that have 
three movies from the Pantheon. Now, how funny is this? There are two years with no Pantheon entries whatsoever, and they both made my list. So, so you, you kind of took that and went the opposite direction. I guess I did. It's okay. just where my gut <laughs> went. Now, I'll get into a little bit more about how I actually did form my list because that was really in some ways the most fun part of this. Certainly agonizing over the ranking wasn't fun, but how did you come up with yours? Yeah, it, it was – this is an impossible task. But what I was surprised at the end of the day is that for me at least a clear number one year did emerge. So that was helpful. It gave me you know a starting point. I also kept in mind – you know, I wanted to send out a recency bias alert because my instinct is I'm going to value the years that I've experienced, you know, the ones I lived through. I'm going to put those up higher if for no other reason that uh, I've seen more movies from them, I have more context. So to balance that out, what I did is I basically gave the older years an extra bump in my ranking and that's under this assumption – very likely there's at least one great movie from each older year yes. that I haven't seen. Yeah. Okay. That's so true as well. I thought maybe that would balance things out. And then in my rankings, what I did is I'm going to work backwards chronologically. So my number five is my most recent year. And this is for the most part. As you'll see, things get a little complicated. <laughs> so you had a rule top. that you then broke. I kind of, I kind of, yeah, shifted it around a little bit. Okay. So the way I did it, I needed a system because this was just too large to try to wrap my head around. And it's surely not the best way, but it was the only thorough and kind of simple approach for me. I needed some kind of structure. And so what I did was I went to the website filmsite.org, which is all about the greatest films mm -hmm. ever. And there's a flaw to the system I'm going to describe here in a second. The flaw being that when they list year by year the greatest films of that year – 12 to 15 of them, there's a good chance, and this is the case, that they overlooked some movies that I would consider great from those years. And there's also cases where they included movies that I wouldn't consider great at all. But for the most part, I'd say 95% of their choices, at least it gives you a good kind of well to choose from in terms of what's typically considered the best films of those years. And you can just go year by year looking at that list of films. So I did that. And I started to notice that there was a decent number of years, Josh, where there were three movies that I, gut reaction, considered to be my all-time favorites. Or I would use the word masterpiece. I consider them masterpieces. Mm -hmm. So that's not really interesting that there are years with three masterpieces. But there were certainly a lot fewer with four or more of my favorites or masterpieces. So I started there. I only wrote down the years that had at least four of those films from 1940 through 2016. Now, there were still a lot to choose from. 22 years for me made the cut that I obviously had to whittle down to five. And yeah, I'll say it for hopefully the last time. How tough is this? 1977 then doesn't make the cut despite it having Annie Hall, Star Wars, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, I, I learned early on in this process what you don't want to do is look back at the ones you've left behind because once you've cut bait, I know, like it, you'll just you'll never end. Like you're experiencing when you were just trying to finalize your list, you'll <laughs> you just got to say, okay, I'm putting these aside and focus on what you did go with. Yeah, let's do that. Let's try it. Okay, <laughs> I'll so, try. My most recent year is 1999. Okay, and this popped up. To me, pretty early on, because I know that I do love, I experienced a lot of films from that year, obviously, and I do love a lot of them. Rob Stennett, a listener on Facebook, also suggested 1999. He said, so many great movies from our best filmmakers at the top of their game or making their mark. It's like the Golden State Warriors of film years. The bench is so deep. Here's what he mentioned. The Sixth Sense, 
Office Space, Toy Story 2, Magnolia, Being John Malkovich, The Insider, The Matrix, Three Kings, Man on the Moon, Fight Club, Election, and The Iron Giant. So all of those, and Rob left out the best movie of 1999, The Blair Witch Project. I had that at the top on my list, and I still do think that it's a horror classic. Now, others not mentioned by Rob, but did make my 1999 Mm -hmm. top 10 list. Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut came out that year. Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead. That's one of my favorite Scorsese films. The Talented Mr. Ripley, Corrieta's Afterlife, Lynch's The Straight Story. And I had this in my top 10, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which I know, adaptation of a TV show, but I loved it so much I had to put it on there. So those are just a handful of the ones. You can also consider uh, Beau Travai from Claire Denis. Elma Dovar's All About My Mother, mm-hmm. Cronenberg's Existence. Jim Jarmusch put out Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai really? in 1999. American Pie, remember the American Pie phenomenon? It started in 1999. <laughs> Great. I like American Pie. Soderbergh, The Limey, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. I'm almost done here. Coppola's Virgin Suicides, Kiristami's The Wind Will Carry Us, and this is probably only matters to me, but Monkey Bone. The Henry Selleck live action. I love Monkey Bone. Great. One more along those lines, and then I'll be done. This comes from Doug Dickinson on Twitter, Doug R. Dickinson. He had far more sound reasoning for 1999, but he did also add, just for Josh, The Phantom Menace. Yeah, great. I Thank knew, you, Doug. I knew you Thank couldn't you, resist. Doug. That put it over the top at number five is 1999. Okay, I'm cutting your mic. My number five <laughs> movie year, I did not go in chronological order, but as you pick 99, and as I started finally shaping my list, I noticed maybe not a coincidence. We could probably discuss with some film historians why this might shake out this way, even though it's all just my subjective opinion. I have a lot of nine years. I have three in a row here. The end of decades seem to be the Hmm. ones that I gravitate to the most. And I'm starting way back in 1959. I mentioned that I started from that premise of the four masterpieces that I basically can't imagine living without. Rio Bravo, Howard Hawks. The 400 Blows, Truffaut, The World of Opu from Satyajit Ray, which was actually my favorite film of the three from that trilogy, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. That's just the top four. And then, Josh, we get to Brisson's Pickpocket, Floating Weeds from Ozu, Hiroshima Monomore, Alain Rene, North by Northwest, which isn't even one of my favorite Hitchcocks, but I know a lot of people love it, good film, Sleeping Beauty from Disney. And if that's not enough to occupy me, I've got four movies that I need to see that have pretty good reputations. Douglas Sirk, maybe, I think people would say his masterpiece, the definitive melodrama from him, Imitation of Life, Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, the ultimate sword and sandal epic, Ben-Hur, also from 1959. You are correct to have 1959 on this list. You are incorrect to have it at number five. Okay. Yeah, we'll return to 1959. But first, let's go to 1974. I have this at my number four slot. Listener John Holm on Twitter at John K. Holm, he listed Godfather 2, Chinatown, The Conversation, Young Frankenstein in Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. The Parallax View, The Taking of Pelham 123, also fun disaster movies like The Towering Inferno and Airport 75. Okay, personally, I haven't seen those last two. I doubt that would influence me much, but 
I especially like the nods to comedy here with Mel Brooks' one-two punch of Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. We revisited both of those recently with Sacred Cow Reviews. I believe they were, and absolutely they hold up. I think, you know, whenever you make lists like this, I always feel like comedies get undersold. So I'm glad to find a year where there were some powerhouse comedies to hold up. 1974 also had Spielberg's featured debut, The Sugarland Express, which is a really fun movie. It's very light on its feet, kind of a precursor to Catch Me If You Can. Texas Chainsaw Massacre yep. was that year. Cassavetes had A Woman Under the Influence. And, you know, just to go back to the top, when you're talking about Chinatown and Godfather 2, you have titles that are competing on many people's lists for the best of all time consideration. Most important of all, I was born in 1974, so huh. birth bias. Well, I did give a lot of thought to my birth year, 1975. I will admit a little bit more than I gave to 1974. But Josh, that was really in the running for me. Definitely an honorable mention. In fact, when I just started thinking about this list initially, I was sure 74 would be in my top five. The four masterpieces, The Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, Blazing Saddles, The Conversation, for me. But just outside of that, you mentioned it, Young Frankenstein, and I was going to mention them if you didn't, A Woman Under the Influence and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But two I don't think you mentioned, Martin Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That's right. Very good. And one of my favorite 70s paranoia thrillers, Warren Beatty in The Parallax View, also from 74. So even with all those titles, I'm going to live in a world without The Godfather Part Two in Chinatown. Are you kidding me? Let's just stop. Let's just stop, Josh. I can't, See, no, you I can't, can't do it. I can't focus ahead. on the positive. Look ahead. 74, a lowly honorable mention. What did make my list? The end of the 80s, 1989. 1989. A Pantheon movie in Do the Right Thing. A Pantheon movie, for me personally, in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Henry V, also okay. landmark film for me, and... Field of Dreams. Those would be the four for me that I adore the most. But beyond that, Born on the Fourth of July, which we did a Sacred Cow on, yep. what, about a year ago or so, and I discovered I liked that movie even more than I thought I did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which I really love. I think is genuinely a great action movie. Drugstore Cowboy, Say Anything, Tim Burton's Batman, Dead Poet Society, you've got The Killer from John Woo, Roger and Me from Michael Moore, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, James Cameron's The Abyss, and how about The Little Mermaid? I think definitely one of the better Disney animated movies. Adam Kemp and I are going populist. I, I am like going it. a little a bit populist. That's a very populist list. Yeah, I just kept looking at those titles and was trying to imagine not being able to revisit Do the Right Thing or Crimes and Misdemeanors or, frankly, Feel the Dreams, as yeah. cheesy as that might seem to some. I just couldn't do it. So it's on the list, 89. All right, there you go. My number three film, I'm going back to 1967. We actually oh, did this man. list we not did. too long ago. I yep. think it was August, right? I can't Episode believe I left 644. it off. Well, I got you covered here. Um, this one's pretty fresh, hard to refute. For me, as I talked about then, it was the year of Paul Newman. You've got Cool Hand Luke, of course, but also the Western that I actually like a little bit better, Ombre. Here's the rest of my top five, La Samurai, the Graduate, and Jacques Tati's Playtime. Now, Adam, you on your list had Don't Look Back, Young Girls of Rochefort, and In Cold Blood, all formidable picks as well from 1967. So add on top of those, these other 67 releases, Bonnie and Clyde, Brisson had Mouchette, Boudwell had Belle de Jour, The Producers, In the Heat of the Night, The Dirty Dozen, The Jungle Book, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Point Blank. But really for me, 
Newman in his prime must survive. Mm-hmm. So 1967 goes on my list. Yeah, it's such a great choice. Obviously an honorable mention for me. The four I listed as my masterpieces, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Cool Hand Luke, In the Heat of the Night. I actually forgot about or didn't discover when I was frantically trying to amass all of these titles. I completely forgot about Le Samurai and the Young Girls of Rochefort being from 1967. That might have put it over the top for me. But yeah, you said it. In Cold Blood, Belle de Jour, Ombre. Playtime, did you mention Titi? Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that Point Blank, which you said Weekend, the really bizarre but really good Godard film, and Dirty Dozen and The Jungle Book, which you mentioned. But those those four, those four are just incredible. And only two of them, I think The Graduate and Cool Hand Luke, are technically Pantheon movies. But Bonnie and Clyde, I think, deserve some consideration. And In the Heat of the Night, for me, is just one of those movies from that year that it was up for Best Picture, but I think is a little bit forgotten. I know you still haven't seen it. No, I haven't. Okay, my number three, maybe we should have coordinated a little bit, Josh, because we've got some crossover. Oh, no. Sticking with the end of the decades, 1999. Oh, good. Yeah, it's my number three. And on that Uproxx article, I think we mentioned this Uproxx article when we did our top five films of 82. A couple of years ago, in 2015, Uproxx.com asked a bunch of different writers and critics to list their favorite cinema year ever, and Alan Sepinwall had 82. So I brought that in to our conversation there where we did our top five films of that year, and Chris Tapley picked 1999, saying it was just so rich. Going back to the independent filmmaking movement, those rebels were fully coming into their own as the new titans with a list of works to rival any great year. Paul Thomas Anderson gave us the bold and dramatic interconnectivity of Magnolia. David O. Russell offered up the first real dissection of the Gulf War with Three Kings, a story of honor in the face of greed. DreamWorks finally caught its stride with an exciting new filmmaker, Sam Mendes, at the helm of American Beauty. Moreover, masterpieces seemed to come left and right. Anthony Minghella's The Talented Mr. Ripley, Latter-day Hitchcock at its finest, Brad Bird's The Iron Giant, animation with dramatic heft before Pixar came to own that niche. Alexander Payne's election, a witty satire announcing a vital new voice. Spike Jonze's Being John Malkovich, the arrival of screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, willfully bending the form into something new. David Fincher's Fight Club, the list is endless. In addition to all of this, the greatest practitioner of the form, in my opinion, gave us his final film as well, and indeed Eyes Wide Shut was right up there with director Stanley Kubrick's finest work. So you heard a bunch of the titles there that justify 1999 being one of the best movie years ever. You heard them in your choice there as well. But the big four for me, I couldn't even land on what the best four were. I think being John Malkovich and Eyes Wide Shut would be for sure two of those four. Iron Giant would probably be in there. And actually, I'd consider All About My Mother, the Almodovar film, probably ahead of Fincher's Fight Club. But then you go to The Insider. The Blair Witch Project, Magnolia, actually, that might be in the top four, or The Matrix. There are really six or seven potential masterpieces, arguable masterpieces in 99. And that's not even counting some of the other ones you said, Josh. Three Kings, Topsy Turvy, Toy Story 2, Audition, the Takeshi Miike film, is from this year. Yeah, The Limey's great. And there are those movies as well that I feel like I need to give another chance and kind of reckon with a little bit. American Beauty is one of them. Loved it in 99 when I saw it. I think we've both commented on this movie a few times over the years. I haven't seen it since 99. I was one of those people who... When I'm kind of at that point where I'm looking for serious cinema, boy, it scratched that itch at the time. And would it now? I really don't know. Another one that I know you love, but I didn't at the time, is Bringing Out the Dead from Martin Scorsese. And Beau Travail is a Claire Denis film that I appreciate, but don't love the way so many cinephiles do. So those are three movies there, just in addition to all the other amazing films we mentioned that are worthy of a revisit. Do you remember 99 at the time being 
talked about as this this great year. I do have memories, and obviously it's more recent, of 07 being talked about that yeah. way because of those filmmakers that we mentioned. But I don't remember it being something that then— See, I do. Okay. I do. It's funny you ask because I was thinking about the fact that the year I started writing reviews as a grad student at Iowa was 2000. And it was the first year I ever had to do a top 10 list. And I remember bemoaning— in the preamble to my top 10 of 2000, the boy, 2000 is just not as good as 99. no 99. I okay. really did. Now, there you go. Yes, I didn't have much to go off of. I probably wasn't comparing it to the best years ever. But I remember sure. even at the time thinking about how groundbreaking The Matrix felt at the time, how much yeah. I did love at the time American Beauty, how much I loved Magnolia. I loved Three Kings. So there were all these titles being John Malkovich that did feel transcendent to me in 1999, 2000. And I didn't feel like 2000 could match that year. Okay. All right. 1952 is my number two pick. And I'm jumping a little bit ahead here. This is where I switch things around. It's also the earliest year that I have on my list, 1952. Partly it's because my other pick comes from the 50s as well. So there wasn't much of a gap between them. I figured they were close enough to switch here. And I do think my number one pick is a stronger movie year. It's close though. And here's why. Here's what you have in 1952. Let's start with two foreign language masterpieces. I think it's fair to say Kurosawa's Ikiru and Desika's Umberto D are both masterpieces. If I must go on, okay, how about a little musical called Singing in the Rain? And possibly the greatest Western of all time, High Noon. It gets considered by some in that category. But it's not Rio Bravo, so you're wrong. Well, as I said, I have a different year in my number one slot. Charlie Chaplin had a movie out in 1952. I haven't seen it, Limelight, but hey, it's there. And here are others that are unseen by me, but I think are worth considering. John Ford's The Quiet Man, Rossellini's Europa 51, Elia Kazan's Viva Zapata, and Manelli's The Bad and the Beautiful. Great someday, film. Oh, you've seen that one? I've seen The Bad okay. and the Beautiful. I was going to say, Great someday film. we're going to get to that Manelli marathon. We are. Hopefully and, soon. Well, we better. If we're dumping all these other years out the window, at least, at least we'll have The Bad and the Beautiful now that I saved 1952. So I also have two years from the 1950s in my top five. Bit of a surprise to me, but that's how it shook out. And I thought that my number two here was surely your other 1950s year, but it sounds like I may have already gotten to that one. For me, Josh, it's 1957. And we got this email from Brent Lambert Zafino in Atlanta. He says, I think a great year for cinema needs to both include great movies and represent some sort of peak or shift in the cinematic landscape. It's a good approach. It's not enough to have great films, but the movies themselves must never be the same. Kind of goes back to what we heard Jim Kite say about 1939 being that kind of groundbreaking year. For that reason, I'm choosing 1957. The Bridge on the River Kwai, a masterpiece that my grandpa and I both agree on. There's going to be a theme developing here. Twelve Angry Men, a TV director, adapts the stage for Hollywood. My grandpa likes this one, too. The Seventh Seal, I'll be lucky if I see anything as beautiful, touching, and inventive as this in 1957 or ever again. Grandpa doesn't agree. (laughs) Wild Strawberries, Ingmar Bergman, quote, hold my beer. Paths of Glory, the war movie for people who don't like war movies. Time to remember the name. At this point, Stanley Kubrick. Knights of Kiberia, the great Fellini that beat two great Bergmans for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Throne of Blood, a Japanese master adapts the bard, and it's awesome. But we're not done. The year also featured a nice collection of genre staples, old Hollywood glory, a now horribly prescient, underrated gem, and the Elvis Presley movie. 310 to Yuma, Sweet Smell of Success. An Affair to Remember, A Face in the Crowd, I'm guessing that's the prescient one, and Jailhouse Rock, I'm guessing that's 
the Elvis one. Nobody could have left 1957 with the same expectations for movies they had a year before. It's my vote for best year for cinema. Well said, Brent. I am with you as soon as I saw these four titles. Knights of Kiberia, Throne of Blood, and The Two Bergmans, Wild Strawberries, and The Seventh Seal. So I'm leaving out of the top four, Paths of Glory, which is probably a masterpiece, Bridge on the River Kwai, 12 Angry Men, Sweet Smell of Success, as Brent argued. And then you even got, among those other ones he mentioned, Witness for the Prosecution, a pretty fun little courtroom thriller from Billy Wilder. 57 was the other 50s year I just had to include. Can I throw one more on top Please. of all that? I, I don't think you mentioned Silk Stockings, the Fred Astaire. No, I haven't seen it. Very good. So there you go to back you up on 1957. All right. My number one, come on, you had to steal my number one thunder by putting 1959 at the number five slot. I'm Adam, shocked. It, this, it was so obvious to me that this was the year. <laughs> and that was the one I shifted in just before we started oh, going. Oh, come on. It was. This hey, is we're the right. year. We're right. Okay, we're right. Let's look Let's at it that look way. Let's just look at it that way. 99 and 59 are the ones we agree on. Those are the ones that have to go in the time capsule. You mentioned a lot of these, but I'm going to go through them again okay. because they are so strong. In one year... We got the following films, and these are all ones I can personally vouch for. I think this is why maybe I put it number one is like I've I've seen these. I love these. Prime Hitchcock, North by Northwest, Billy Wilder, Jack Lemmon together with Marilyn Monroe as well in Some Like It Hot, that Douglas Sirk melodrama imitation of life, and yes – High Noon, the best Western? No, I think we're probably going to say that it's Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo at least might have something to say about that. In 1959, Truffaut made his debut with The 400 Blows. Brisson gave us one of his classics, Pickpocket. There was an Ozu landmark with Floating Weeds, a Rene masterpiece with Hiroshima Mon Amour, and, yes, I think I did save the best for last here, the Satyajit Ray masterwork, Apur Sansar, The World of Apu. So if that wasn't enough, you listed some of these, and maybe some of these you value more highly than those. Ben-Hur, Cassavetti's Shadows, Suddenly Last Summer, two Otto Preminger films, unfortunately I haven't seen, Anatomy of a Murder, or Porgy and Best, but wanted to at least give them a mention. And only because it's an excuse to tease next week's show on the best bad movies of all time to connect The Disaster Artist and The Room, Plan 9 from Outer Space came out in 1959. Yeah. So to repeat, Some Like It Hot, Rio Bravo, 400 Blows, Hiroshima Monomore, The World we of Pooh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Case Closed. Case Closed. 59 it is. Okay. My number one. I think you're going to groan at a little bit, Josh, because you're going to accuse me of recency bias. My number one is 2007, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood. I could talk about those films. Why don't we let a listener do a little bit of the talking? Hey, Adam and Josh, this is John Randall Reese from Richmond, Virginia. Just calling about the uh, look back at 2007. First year of cinema, school at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. And I got a job at the West Hampton Theater, which is a two-screen theater. Downstairs was playing There Will Be Blood, and upstairs was playing No Country for Old Men. We had those two movies for about three months, and I saw each one at least 15 times. Uh, It's an amazing year, and uh, I mean, really, it's apples and oranges, but if I had to choose, I'd go with There Will Be Blood every time. All right, thanks so much, guys. Love the show. So definitely a good time to be discovering a love of cinema and to be working at a movie theater when No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood are playing. The obvious big four here, Josh, the masterpieces, No Country, Blood, Zodiac, and yes, I know I'm out all alone, but I'm still putting it there, Joe Wright's Atonement. Those are the four for me. That's then leaving off once. Juno, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, four months 
three weeks and two days. That's that next tier of great movies for me. It's got the best Harry Potter film. Yes, I said it. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is the best Harry Potter film. Into the Wild, which I think was your number one of that year. It was. And I considered it for my top ten. The Orphanage, which we've talked about a lot, one of my favorite horror films of the past decade plus. Black Snake Moan, love that movie. Funny Games, I know you aren't a fan of the Michael Hanukkah remake. I am. Knocked Up, still maybe the most I've ever laughed at a movie in a theater. The King of Kong, that great documentary. My Winnipeg, that really trippy docu-memoir from Guy Madden that I love. And Jeff Nichols' debut film, Shotgun Stories, was also from 2007. So those are just the best films and the other really good films from 2007. How about the movies that at the time I was mixed on or just thought were okay, maybe a little bit overrated? Wait till you hear some of these titles. The Lives of Others, Ratatouille, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, The Darjeeling Limited, from Wes Anderson, Michael Clayton, Persepolis, Lametz, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Bombax, Margot at the Wedding. Those are films that for a lot of people, they could choose their big four from that list of movies that for me, I was kind of ho-hum on and I really do want to revisit and see if I have a different reaction this time around. And I didn't have it at number one initially, but as I kept doing more and more of the shuffling, I just realized that if I really was going to be stuck with one movie year, and maybe it is because they're the freshest in my mind, but if I was going to be stuck with one movie year, all those movies I mentioned, I think, are the the movies I want to be stuck with. So here's where I have to try to explain why There Will Be Blood was not on my list. Okay. I, I think there are clearly some that I could shuffle out here. It's such a strong I've seen year. your list. Yes, you <laughs> could. <laughs> I'm sure you have some obvious ones. <laughs> I would stick with Into the Wild at number one. I just, it, not just because I, I do a magnificent Jeff Spicoli impersonation. I think Sean Penn made something, you know, obviously it was out of character, even though he's made some other good films and some ones that haven't been praised as well. This is just a beautiful movie. I would not want to give up Into the Wild. Uh, But here's some outliners that I had on there. The Astronaut Farmer, which is from Michael and Mark Polish. Mm -hmm. I just remember falling in love with that movie. How'd that work out for you, Josh? Well, I haven't seen it since, but I guess this speaks a little bit to my approach to top 10 lists, too, is I look at them more as, like, diary entries than predictive yeah. testaments to the year. Sure. So so maybe I would watch that again and be like, what was I thinking? Maybe I would watch it again and be like, where was everybody else? Possibly. But obviously, after just seeing There Will Be Blood, that I would want to give it a slot maybe over that. Uh, Juno, I don't know. I, I like it quite a bit, but is it? top 10 worthy? Would that hold up as well? Well, I I do have a question about that one. That for me is sort of the American beauty question of 2007. I think, right. right. Because it was a movie that at the the time, it was of the the moment and so many people loved the movie. And I'm just saying it's probably come up before, but I'm pretty sure I saw at Toronto the first screening of that movie ever. And I only bring that up because it was the debut of that movie. There was no hype surrounding it. it. There was no hype. No one knew anything. I didn't even know who was in the movie when I sat down to watch it. And After we got past the terrible opening scene, I thought it was terrible at the time and still do with Rain Wilson at the convenience store. I fell in love with this movie. I fell in love with the character, the wittiness of the dialogue. I really couldn't believe how much I loved the movie. And then over time, it's become this thing that most people like to rip on. I've only seen scenes here and there from it. I've never sat down to watch it start to finish. I don't regret or feel in any way embarrassment about having it 
at number five on my list in 2007. That means I had it ahead of There Will Be Blood. Okay, so maybe I'm embarrassed <laughs> a little bit. But if I was redoing my list right now without rewatching all of these movies, if I was redoing my 2007 top 10, I would not bump Juno out. I would bump Juno from number five to number seven. I'd bump once from number seven up to six, and then I would just redo the way I had the list. I had it No Country, Atonement 2, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly 3, Zodiac 4. I'd do it No Country, There Will Be Blood 2, Zodiac 3, Atonement 4. Yeah, I, I think I'd want to find room for a Diving Bell as well. On diving Bell's list, five. You know, so uh, did you mention Away From Her at all in 2007? I did um, not. Because that was right. on my top That's 10. on the list and, and a I, great movie. Yeah, I would not knock that Belongs off. in my list of justifications for 2007 being an incredible year. I would keep that on my top 10. You're not going to believe this, but I think one of the ones I had in my top 10 I might bump for There Will Be Blood is maybe the Darjeeling Limited. It, it's my least favorite Wes Anderson. Again, have not revisited it in a while. I'll probably be doing it soon. That's the one Adeline hasn't seen yet. So I'm going to take another look at that. Number 10, here's the one that's the Simpsons movie. It, it's kind of along the lines of South great. Park. I mean, it, and it, it's to me, it's not just because they didn't botch it, but they did everything that the series did so well. And it's sort of this, maybe here I was thinking like the time capsule element, you mm-hmm. know, this, this satire of suburban American life at the turn of the 21st century that they just nailed that I wanted to put on my top 10 list. But should there will be blood, which maybe encompasses America in its entirety beyond there instead? Yes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, it should. And on that, we are done listing our top five movie years, though. It sounds like we have some honorable mentions. We've already honorably mentioned a few of them. Let me just throw it out there real quick. Do we sit on these? Is it possible we revisit this subject at a later date? Because actually... I think this was a lot of fun as much as it pained me to put the list together. Maybe we could revisit it. You just you just don't want to list these movies because you know they're going in the dustbin. You know me you so want to well. End on a high no, note. I just, you there are so on... many good years still well, we to could, choose. We from. could revisit it, but still name. Okay. Let's. I think what this will help is give some context to how hard this actually was because okay. these were some of the things we had to throw aside. I had to throw aside 1960. These are the, these are the ones that I know that I've seen. I know where you're going. Okay. Psycho, The Apartment, La Dolce Vita. Yeah. The Magnificent Seven, Breathless, La Ventura, La Ventura, and Peeping Tom. Yeah, Peeping Tom, and I'd throw in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and The Virgin Spring. There you Not go. one of my favorite Bergmans, but a good Bergman. Another 50s pick, and Jason Knight on Facebook mentioned this. I'm not going to say best, but a personal favorite is 1954. Seven Samurai, Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, On the Waterfront, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm with you there, Jason. I'd also add in 54, Godzilla and La Strada. All right, just a couple more real quick uh-huh. here. 1927, really two movies alone put this in consideration, Metropolis and Sunrise. 1935, Bride of Frankenstein, A Night at the Opera was a Marx Brothers picture I really liked. Mm-hmm. I know we have a reputation for dumping on them in their entirety. I really did like A Night at the Opera. Top Hat is one of my favorite Astaire Rogers pictures so and Captain Blood. Last year, I'm going to give you 1941. You think of it as the year of Citizen Kane, but we also got The Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, The Maltese Falcon, How Green Was My Valley, And Dumbo for you. Well, the oldest year I considered, again, I only really went back to 39, but 1946 was one I thought about. The Big Sleep, Brief Encounter, It's a Wonderful Life, and The Killers. And that's not counting. That's just the big four. A Matter of Life and Death from Powell and Pressburger, Notorious from Hitchcock, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Paisan, and... I haven't seen the best years of our lives, which would also be from oh, 46. so good. How about those other 50s years I thought about? 1950, All About Eve, 
in a lonely place, Rashomon, Sunset Boulevard. 1955, didn't actually meet my criteria because there are only three legit, obvious masterpieces I could point to, but they're so good, Josh, I have to say them. Ordet, Father Panchali, The Night of the Hunter. Yeah. Oh. I think the only reason I still need to see Ordet, and if I had, that might have bumped it up. Can we say maybe the 50s, we're coming to a consensus that the it 50s might be. were the best Well, decade. except in that list of years I considered, I've got 72 straight through to 79. I think the only year that didn't make the cut for me was 78. Okay. Yeah. So it's still hard for me to look past the 70s. How about, for example, this is one that was in my top five up to the last minute. 1973, Badlands, The Exorcist, The Long Goodbye, Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, one of my favorite Bergman's, Mean Streets, Day for Night from Truffaut, High Plains Drifter, Clint Eastwood, The Last Detail, Paper Moon, American Graffiti, Don't Look Now, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid from Peckinpah, and then that's not counting the big Hollywood movies of that year, The Sting, Serpico, The Way We Were, 73, a really, really good year. I'll give you just a couple more. The year that I thought, along with 74, would be a no-brainer for this list, and yet I left it off. 76, Network, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and I'll just give you two more here. 1988. Grave of the Fireflies, The Thin Blue Line from Errol Morris, A Fish Called Wanda, and Die Hard. There you have, actually, the more I think about it, maybe I should have thought about this more because it just now occurs to me, my favorite animated film in Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, I mean, okay? that's, that's one way to the go about thin, it, right? I, I didn't consider it until just now, but my favorite animated film, maybe my favorite documentary in The Thin Blue Line, or it's certainly up there. My favorite comedy, A Fish Called Wanda, in competition with Raising Arizona, and... The definitive action movie, Die Hard, they're all there, right there. In That's sort of the, the time capsule approach, which is definitely one way to go about it. So what was the most recent year you considered? Other than 07, did you go beyond 2007 at all? I, I actually, so on Wikipedia, I don't know how thorough the list was, but it was exhaustive. They listed films by year. And so once I kind of narrowed down from our production assistant, Jeremy Wellhausen, found a great Reddit yes. survey that kind of did similar to what you found. Like, here are the 10 big movies from each year. So I picked the years from that list and then moved over to that Wikipedia exhaustive list and yeah, I sat down and looked at every year going mm -hmm. back to, you know, Melies and a trip to the moon. Not that I've seen a ton from then, but right. I just wanted to like give it some consideration. Okay. But you didn't have one from post 2007 that you really thought about? That was like in the running. No, okay. I didn't. No. Well, it probably wasn't really in the running, but an honorable mention, it counts 2013, just based on for me, my love for Inside Lewin Davis her, and then some combination of these three movies, Before Midnight, Stories We Tell, and The Act of Killing. I think 2013 is one of the better years here over the past five or so, and I think we may be, in closing here, we should preemptively answer a question. I'll pose it to you. Why no love for 1994, Josh? Because, I don't know if you looked at all of those lists from Jeremy and all the research and homework he gave us. But 94 is one of those years that if you look at entertainmentweekly.com or whatever, when they give their top three or other top tens, it's like 94 is almost always number one or in the running for number one. So why yeah, did we both I, leave it off? I, I can't explain because I'm actually one of the people who still defends Forrest Gump. Right. Uh, so that would seem to put it. I did look at it, gave it some thought. I don't know. Because as I said at the beginning, this is pointless. Yeah. <laughs> now you say it after 45 <laughs> minutes exactly. of, of talking. Exactly. But you know what? It just didn't meet my criteria. You had Pulp Fiction. 
and you had Chunking Express. And don't yeah. get me wrong, I love Hoop Dreams and Ed Wood's very good. The Shawshank Redemption's very good. Also very good, Natural Born Killers, Caro Diario, Heavenly Creatures. And I still like Forrest Gump as well, another one that is much derided these days, but I liked it at the time. I think just after you get past Pulp and Chunking Express, it didn't have enough didn't have enough heft up at the top for me, so I guess I'm a little bit surprised it's as beloved a movie year as it is. Yeah, it does sound, when you go through those titles, all strong, but compared to some of these other years we've listed, uh, I, I don't think it stands up. All right, that is our show. If you have any thoughts, any comments about our top five movie years, There Will Be Blood or anything else, send us an email or MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in an upcoming show, 312 264 0744. At filmspotting.net, that's where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And if you haven't already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. And also over at our website, filmspotting.net, click on shop and you can find our all new Film Spotting merch. So next week, after we've just delved into the greatest of all time, We're going to go the opposite direction. The worst of all time with the top five best worst movies. The tie-in there will also have a review of The Disaster Artist and a little talk about its inspiration, Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Yeah, other than The Disaster Artist opening and limited release, there's nothing else major on the schedule. We may have some time to catch up with some more of those end-of-year films we need to see. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.